Welcome to Food Forward, Nourishing the World, with your host, Alan Weiner. Over the next hour, you'll explore the innovative and ever-evolving solutions in everyone's favorite topic, food. Now, here's your host, Alan. Welcome to Food Forward, the show where we explore the latest and greatest in the culinary world, one delicious bite at a time. I'm your host, Alan Weiner, and today we're embarking on a spicy adventure. If you ever stepped into my kitchen, aside from a refrigerator overflowing with vegetables, you'd think that you walked into a global spice bazaar. Shelves lined with jars, each holding a world of flavors from fiery chilies to aromatic cardamoms and everything in between. Spices, my friends, are the unsung hero of our kitchens. They're not just for adding heat or flavor. They're about bringing stories and cultures to our plates. In this episode, we will dive into the world of spices, focusing on an exciting new entrant. We'll explore how these ancient treasures are finding new life in modern dishes, transforming the ordinary into the extraordinary. So grab your apron and let's get ready to add some extra flavor to our culinary journey. This is Food Forward Nourishing the World, where every ingredient tells a story. And today, it's all about the spice of life. So with that, let's get started. Welcome to Food Forward Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. Our first guest today is hopefully going to bring a little bit of spice to the program. I couldn't resist that. Our guest is Stephen Parker. Stephen is the corporate executive chef for Black Tap Restaurants, and I think also Lot 15, if I'm not mistaken. And they're doing something special for the 2024 Flavor of the Year. But we'll let Stephen tell you about that. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you for having me. So um, I noticed that McCormick has come out with its 2024 uh, spice trend. And as part of that, they announced that they have developed a partnership um, with your restaurant chain, um, Black Tap. So how did this come to be? How do you normally work with spice companies? Um, we work with different collaborations, sauces and spices. We kind of go back and forth. This was our first collaboration when it comes to spice companies. We do a lot of our own kind of spices in-house, Alan. But this was a first opportunity to do a collaboration with a big brand and take one of their limited time spices and have some fun with it in the restaurant. See how it works on the sweet side. See how it works on the savory side. And we're lucky enough, like you mentioned before, prior to our interview starting, lucky enough to have a, a global footprint, right? So we're able enough to fool around with these spices and also have fun with them in different parts of the world. So now, had just, you worked with them before? How did they select um, Black Tap? I think they kind of, I think they kind of found us. We, 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 they reached out to us. Um, and they see all the different collabs that we do with different brands, different foods, whether it's a, a, a shape, whether it's a, you know, a great craft burger. And I think they were interested because of our footprint around the world, because we're in Dubai and we're in Singapore and Malaysia and Switzerland. I felt like it was, they felt that it was a good global footprint and we have a great culinary team. And we really love doing collabs and coming together with other companies and doing things together. So I felt like they felt it was a good marriage. 
So when it came to you and suggested, you know, that their spice was going to be the tamarind and pasilla chili, did you say, well, let me see what I can do with that before I agree? Or did you just accept the challenge and say, we're going to make this work? Alan, to be honest with you, it was a blind challenge. So I was told it was going to be the limited spice of the year. I wasn't told what spice it was going to be. The spice came us to us a few days later. And it was curiously different for me. That tamarind has a sour punch, a little bit sweet on the back flavor. Um, and with the chili, it gave it a little bit of heat. And I thought it was a very interesting spice. Um, for me, I went right to a Southeast Asian flavor when it went to savory. And I went to more of a Latin-inspired thing when we went to sweet. A lot of the different cultures and places all over the world use tamarind in their food. And they use it in different ways. Um, so I felt like it was a very complex spice, but it had a lot of legs and you can do a lot with it. So I was really happy when I found out and I first tasted the spice. What was the first thing you made with it? The first thing I made with it, well, I put it in vanilla ice cream first because I have to make a milkshake with it, right? So I put it with vanilla ice cream. Um, Tara, that's on the phone with us now, um, uh, uh, our um, executive vice president of marketing, case stay with me. I tasted it with some cocoa powder. I tasted it with vanilla ice cream and kind of started developing ideas for the sweet side of things. Um, you know, added some cocoa powder, uh, added some chocolate fudge just to see how that tamarind chili spice kind of worked with those sweet flavors. Um, and then after I got through that, I started actually making a jam out of it. I started cooking it down with some different other elements and different sauces and making a really tangy almost Southeast Asian tamarind chili jam out of this spice that I thought really incorporated everything and kind of helped it work on a burner. Ah, so you're known for your burgers. And I guess my question is, um, I assume you've tried it in a burger at this point? Yeah, we definitely have. We, have, we tried it on a couple different things, a chicken sandwich, a burger. But where we ended up is on a burger, right? So we made a uh, a delicious tamarind chili jam. Um, and then we put it on top of a beef patty and we use some pickled vegetables um, and some herbs like Thai basil, things that really we felt connected with that spice and gave it some legs um, and ma made it super front forward. So when you tasted that burger, you get that, you know, sour, yummy, kind of spicy tamarind chili bite as soon as you get your first bite of that burger. So I would imagine that you have, um, you know, gotten some feedback from your colleagues, probably maybe gathered around and took um, tastes. So what was the initial reaction? Some initial reactions, a lot of people were like, wow, this is really special. It's a really interesting burger. We did a couple of things with the spice, Alan, when it refers to the burger. The reactions, I thought, I thought we got a lot of great reactions. Like, wow, it's a very curious punch. It has a lot of sourness to it but the way we worked it with the pickled vegetables um and we used a, like a toasted sesame aioli that really mm. worked well and kind of melded those flavors so we got a really some great reactions some surprising reactions so we, we overall the reactions we got from the tastings were were you know through through the roof so if i'm not mistaken um this kind of launches around the early part of february is that correct Yes, um, in every one of our locations around the world. So are you going to kind of launch big and put it in a number of, of products, or are you going to kind of gently roll it out to get feedback? 
We're actually going to launch at the same time in every store worldwide. We're going to get feedback from our customers, staff, um, and see how it goes. We're really excited about it. We'll be running the full month in most of our stores. Um, and that the burger itself and the milkshake that both incorporates this tamarind chili spice. Hmm. So what about your other um, endeavor, Lot 15? Is, are they going to be involved in this as well? Well, Lot 15 we use for seating at Black Cap. So Lot 15 is open at night. We have a lobby bar and we do a couple things over there. We have some extra seating behind our Lot 15 area. And guests are more than you know welcome to sit down and order Black Cap there. We're not going to be launching that spice under that label, um, Lot 15, but it'll definitely be launched at our Black Tap right next door. So I, I've looked over the locations that you have, Black Tap, and, and prior to our call, I mentioned that I saw um, one of the Black Tap restaurants in, in Switzerland. Because you're dealing with a, a diverse clientele, um, people that range from you know Dubai to Switzerland to Dallas, Texas, do you feel any kind of need to alter or tailor the use of this spice for a particular location? Do they have the freedom to, to play with it somehow? No, they don't have the freedom to, to play with it um, in that way, Alan. But I think the special part of Black Cap is that we do some locality, right? We do some local specific specials. You know, for example, the Swiss Alpine Burger, we have a golf burger in Dubai. We do a great burger in Las Vegas, our black truffle burger. We have a TX bourbon burger in, in Dallas, Texas. So you have those nice neighborhood local special flavors that people can, can come accustomed to. But I think the special part of Black Tap is, is that you get a little taste of New York and a little taste of a, a American craft without a passport, without a plane ticket. And we kind of transform, you know, you from being at Black Tap to being in America. So I think these flavors, we're gonna stick with the original recipe. We're gonna stick with what everybody's running and get feedback from everybody. And I think the special thing about coming to Black Tap is you gain that experience, right? You get that experience of all these different flavors. Um, and, and I think it really opens people's palates and um, at the same time makes them very happy, right? They can get the all American cheeseburger. They could get a Greg Norman, which is, you know, Australian walking beef and blue cheese. Or they could do something different and try this special. And I think that's what's really cool about it. It's a surprising thing. And I think for people, people in different markets, they might not have had a chance to taste something like this. So I so, think it's, it's quite special. Yeah, you, you walked into my next question. And that is, you know, and I, I know Tara is involved in, in marketing. Um, so in the past, when you've done collaborations, what method of feedback do you use? I mean, more than just cards on a table, comments from wait staff. Um, how do you judge feedback from, from your clients, from your uh, people who eat at the restaurant? So for me, there's a double, you know, a couple of different ways. Obviously, at the table, they provide feedback, like you said, to servers. You know, social, social media has really helped us with feedback, right? Because once we post something, and we post the collaboration on every handle. You can actually see all the comments, people that have come into that store and tasted it. And I think social media has done a great job for restaurants when they do a collaboration or they do a great item or something they're super proud about. Um, they post it on their handle. And those people that actually had those items or were intrigued by that post actually come into the restaurant and taste it. And then on social, you could get DMs and comments on the handle. And I think for me, that's the biggest way I receive feedback um, other than, you know, whether it's a barcode, whether it's server feedback at the table, 
I think for me, social is great feedback that we get, you know, whether it's people excited about it, whether it's people that love Tamarin, um, or whether it's someone that just went into the restaurant and, and is commenting on that post or DMing us and letting us know what they thought of that item. So for me, I, I really love that social feedback that we get. So you mentioned before that this is not your first collaboration. Can you talk to maybe one or two of the other collaborations you've done in the past? Yeah, um, we have done a lot of different collaborations in the past. Um, one collaboration that sticks out to my mind right now, is we did a collaboration, you know, with with our with our units, our first like international black app collaboration, um, not with another company, but with each other. Right. So Tara came on board about close to nine, 10 months ago. And when we, we opened up Nashville, we ran a really Alan, a really special sandwich. We ran a, a take on a Nashville hopper because Black Tap's not from Nashville and neither is Stephen Parker. We kind of developed our own spice in house. This delicious black garlic, um, Szechuan, Calabria, and chili rub that we actually make at Black Tap. And that was our version of a Black Tap hot chicken sandwich. And that collab went all around the world. So you could get that Black Tap hot chicken sandwich that we were opening up in Nashville. You could get it in Switzerland. You could get it in Zurich. You could get it in Disneyland. And that was the big I think the first time that me and Tara looked at each other and we realized we had legs for doing international collabs at every location at the same time. So that was really special. We also did a great collab with Junior's Cheesecake back in oh, yeah. 2017 and a half. Um, we did it with a big slice of, you know, um, New York style cream cheese cheesecake, cheese, cheesecake on top of a strawberry milkshake, graham crackers, strawberry pie filling. And it was really special. It really had legs. It was a great collaboration. Um, and we did that with juniors. So that was a, that's a, you know, idea of an iconic collaboration with an iconic, iconic brand out of New York City. Right. I was going to say, talk about bringing New York to the world. Um, juniors Cheesecake, which, you know, I'm, I'm salivating now that you mention it, even though it's not even lunchtime here. Um, let me go back and talk a little bit about your relationship with McCormick. Um, are they going to cross promote what you're doing at the restaurants? I believe they're going to do some, you know, they definitely cross promoted it when we did our event with McCormick. They're definitely going to do some cross promotion on their social handle about what Black Tap doing because it's their flavor of the year, right? It's their limited, limited release on their spice. And they're showing, you know, people at home how this spice can be used, even in restaurant, you know, restaurant items, food items, to give that home cook, to give these people that are buying these spices ideas what they could do with it. This stuff is just, it's, it's surprisingly delicious, even with a sprinkle on, on your French fries. So I think it really gives the people at home and it gives them a little bit leverage when they're marketing this this type of item on what people can do with it. Right. So it's definitely going to be a cross promotion with McCormick as well. So I've, I've watched a couple of your videos on YouTube on on making the perfect burger. Are you going to create a, a, a video using um, the tamarind spice? I think we have a couple videos already of us doing builds and making this and talking about it. I think Tara has a lot of different things that she's going to release once we start running the special in stores. So I guess the answer, Alan, is yes, there will be a video. So um, just to recap, how many um, Black Tap restaurants are there? I believe right now we're sitting at 21. And they're across the U.S., Europe, uh, any in Asia? 
So we have one in Singapore in Marina Bay Sands, and then we have one in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur. Oh, okay. Um, so as we wrap up, can you tell tell people where they can find out more information about where they could find a blacktop restaurant and um, you know what's on the menu and so on? Yeah, www.blacktop.com. You can find all our menus there, all our international locations. And like I said, this McCormick special tamarind chili spice burger and our churro cocoa chili tamarind shake will be available at all our locations. So everyone can find us on our website and find our locations and our menus. Great. I'd like to thank Stephen Parker, who is the corporate executive chef for Blacktop Restaurants for sharing some time with us and talking about their collaboration with McCormick Spice. We will be back after this message. Mark Tower's journey from his humble beginnings in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, to finding himself while in prison may sound familiar to some other famous figures, but his story is uniquely his own. Alan Weiner's new book, Watch Tower, chronicles Tower's wayward early days doing construction work of questionable legality to finding purpose in helping children in Peru and finally discovering his calling as a watchmaker while in prison. It's a story of redemption that teaches the value of time and faith in oneself. You can get your copy of Watch Tower today and dive into this inspirational tale. The book is available on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble.com, and your favorite bookstore. Watchtower, from the author who brought you the Max Rosen Mystery Series. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. Today, we are truly honored to host Dr. Deb Kennedy, a trailblazer in the field of culinary medicine. Dr. Kennedy has distinguished herself through her innovative approach to health and nutrition, seamlessly blending the art of cooking with the science of medicine. Her work has not only transformed our understanding of food's role in health and wellness, but also inspired countless individuals to embrace a healthier lifestyle through informed dietary choices. With a rich background in both clinical practice and culinary arts, Dr. Kennedy stands at the forefront of this exciting and evolving field. Today, we will delve into her journey, insights, and the impact of her pioneering work in culinary medicine. Welcome, Dr. Deb. Thank you, Alan. Uh, that was a wonderful introduction. <laughs> I well, appreciate it. Oh, I'm no so problem. happy to be here with you today. So before we start with some questions, I'm going to throw you a curveball. What did you have for dinner last night? Oh, I am so glad you asked that question because I was really hungry and I, I am not a vegan or a vegetarian, but I do follow what's called the protein flip, which is little bits of meat protein, but mostly vegetables. So I did a riff on shepherd's pie. So I created this most amazing shepherd's pie. So it started with 
probably with two cups of chopped very finely onions and squash and sweet potato. And I sauteed that and I put in some broth, a little bit of Worcestershire sauce, and a little bit, like two tablespoons of this incredible barbecue sauce from Prohibition Pig in Vermont, which is incredible. And then I sauteed a little bit of lamb. There was very little lamb in the whole dish. And it made, I want to say like three quarts, a three quart saucepan. And on the top, I steamed cauliflower, sweet potato, and potato and made a mashed potato. And that was the best, the best um, shepherd's pie I've ever had in my life. And it probably had one tenth meat and nine tenths vegetables. And that's what I want to show people that you decide how far down the plant forward path you want to go but it's delicious. <laughs> it sounds fantastic. It's interesting. So I two things. One is um, I saw a video where Jamie Oliver makes a totally vegan shepherd's pie and it's wonderful. Now, the twist that I do when it comes to mashed potatoes, and I don't want this to be about me, um, is I mash together a small amount of potatoes, but celery root. And I mash them and I put in a little bit of plant-based milk and plant-based butter and some pretty high quality plant-based cheese. And I would use that on top or I use it as a side dish. Um, But I I get where you're coming from. You know, you can have people, people think that this is, this can be very boring. I think it's incredibly fun and creative, but this is not about that. So let's get down to some things that I think everybody will be interested in. You dedicated your career to culinary medicine. Can you explain what exactly culinary medicine is and why it's important? I will. And there are several definitions of culinary medicine. And in this work that I did, we came up with uh, a really fresh definition that really gets to the heart of the matter. Culinary medicine is about empowering the person. And so it really is a skill-building, person-centered approach that teaches individuals how to translate culinary, clinical nutrition recommendations into culinary skills. So basically, in a nutshell, what do you need to learn to do in the kitchen and at the store to, to one, eat more vegetables, eat more whole grains? If your doctor tells you to eat less fat, what is that? How do you translate that in the kitchen and at the store? That's where people get lost. And that's what culinary medicine does. It fills that gap, takes you know, the information and yeah. translates that into skill building so that people can actually enjoy the diet that they are being advised to follow. You know, I, I want your take on this point. It's been my experience and maybe I don't go to the right doctors, but doctors know very little about diet. <laughs> Oh, so very little, Alan. So very, very little. And, yes. and how do we get around that? Well, there are some movements in trying to teach them more nutrition. But I've got a really great background in that I started in the field of holistic medicine, which was called complementary alternative medicine. And that was in the early 90s. And what happened was, the doctors started picketing because they didn't like complementary alternative medicine. And then they decided, I want to be the one to do acupuncture. I want to be the one to do herbs. And 
they quickly found out within about five to seven years, I don't have the time to do acupuncture and I don't have the time to do herbs. But what it did do was give them the experience how valuable these um, modalities were. And I see the same. So the long goal, yep. The long goal, Alan, is yes, let's teach more doctors about nutrition and culinary medicine does that. But in the meantime, the leaders in this field are not the clinicians. The clinicians need to refer a patient to somebody who really understands culinary medicine. And so that is your chefs and your nutritionists who also have a background in cooking. Interesting. So your latest project is the Food Coach Academy. Tell us more about that. And and how does it help people improve their health through food? Right. So the Food Coach Academy is exactly what my 35 years of experience has come to because I'm also certified in value-based medicine. And what I see missing in the world of preventive medicine, which has a lot to do with nutrition, is that there is nobody in that space to do the skill building. So for instance, if I told you to watch a video of how to drive a car, and then you came back and you couldn't drive a car, and I'm like, Alan, why aren't you driving the car? Well, no one showed you how to drive the car, right? And so these food coaches take the information that doctors or dietitians or naturopaths has told their client is best for their health. And then they interact as a coach with that person and teach them how to cook, how to plan meals and how to shop. I kind of say it's like a health coach ran into a chef training, both of them in the same. So it will help them improve their health through food because they're going to want to eat it, right? Mm -hmm. Because they are taught how to make delicious, healthy food. So if I wanted to be a food coach, uh, how do I get involved in this project? Well, it's actually launching January 3rd, 2024, which we're really excited about. Um, If you go to my website, which is drdebkennedy.com, you'll see that there's links there. And the Food Coach Academy is done in partnership with Ruby, R-O-U-X-B-E, which is the number one online culinary school. And you can also find it there as well. And when you're completed the course, and I assume this is all online, um, yes. do you get a, a degree? I mean, what what do you take away from it? Yes, you actually get a certification. So what I've been doing is following what's happening in the medical system. And what we see is that the docs don't have the time to really engage in preventive medicine. And what I've seen happen in the last 12 years specifically is that then the nurses took over and then the nurses got really busy. And there's this saying called, you work at the top of your license. So they don't want doctors doing anything that nurses can do. And nurses don't want to be doing anything that a dietitian can be doing, et cetera, et cetera. And then what popped up are these health coaches and these health coaches and community healthcare workers are now being trained and established as the foundational workforce in order to create this preventative medicine field and empower them. And so health coaches, and the reason I'm talking about health coaches is because there now is a national certification and the same will happen for food coaches as well. That will come. It's not established right yet, but if you follow the lead of the health coaches, 
the ultimate goal of the certification in food coaching is to have it reimbursed by insurance Mm -hmm. because I want everybody to be able to do this. I want to reach the end of the end of the road, as we like to say in preventive medicine. There's a leader in every community and whether that's in a church or in a community center, and I want to train them how to be a food coach so that they go into their communities where they're well-known and respected and change people's lives through food. So when I worked in tech, I always believed that solutions have to have a balance of art and science. Now, in your life, you have a PhD in nutrition, but you're also a chef. So how do you balance the two to really do the job that you do? So I'm a scientist through and through, but I was born as a chef. (laughs) So I started cooking at the age of four and I really, really enjoyed it. And so the science is the basis of which all of this emerges from. Let's look at it as the soil. So for the culinary medicine textbook, which then is what is used in the Food Coach Academy, I worked with 40 plus nutrition scientists from around the world. And I also worked with a dozen chefs. So the the science was, okay, chefs, well, nutritionists first, you tell me, what is it we need to know about fruit? And so they'd come up with the recommendations. It's not rocket science there, but you come up with the recommendations. Then I would hand it over to the chefs and go, chefs, how do I translate that into culinary arts? How do I translate that? And so it's this interchange. And that, if I look back, it's a really good question that you ask, Alan, because when I look back at my days of holistic medicine, I was often asked that question. How do you traverse both the Western medicine and the holistic medicine? And so I had training from 30 years ago, how to have my feet in two worlds and be able to walk that line where I could connect with people on both sides and hope to bring them together. So when you say that you worked with with a dozen or so chefs, how did you find these chefs? Because not every chef is really equipped to translate the, the recommendations into something that not only meets those recommendations, but as as I watched in your video on taste, tastes, you know, appealing. Yes. So I've been in this field for a very long time, right? So I had made connections with a lot of chefs and a lot of chefs that were in what's considered integrative medicine. Now, that's just another word for holistic medicine, which was another word for complementary medicine. So those that kind of were on the fringe and I knew who they were and I had a really great network um, with people that were in really distinguished roles and saying, okay, who do you know? And this just, this just blossomed. It was meant to be. Interesting. I want to go back to the textbook that you talked about, the culinary medicine textbook. What are what are the key principles that you would want a reader to take away, the high-level stuff? Right. So the goal was to establish the culinary competencies for nutrition recommendations. And the principles that arose out of that was to really to be able to empower others by teaching these cooking skills. So it's to help people fall in love with food again, right? We're born, we have blissful moments um, when we're at, when we're being bottle fed or breastfed, and then our life takes over 
And a lot of us develop this love-hate relationship with food. My body is not what I like it to be, or I don't get that job because I'm overweight, et cetera, et cetera. And food becomes the enemy. So it's really about opening a space so that people can reconnect with food. And the second one is that the science isn't the end of the road. It's actually the beginning of the road, right? So it leads the way to creating delicious, healthy meals, and food coaches learn how to make those healthy meals. And this is based on what I've been studying for the last 15 years, which is a modular approach. So if I asked you to follow a healthy diet, what I'm really asking is that you follow about 150 to 170 nutrition recommendations at the same time, while you make your 220 food decisions at once. And so there's way too much information that we're asking people, and they tend to implode. So I studied how people learn and how they make behavior change. And they do it in one discrete element at a time. So if you look at elementary school, they're learning history, and then they go to a class and they're learning math. So I took those 160 recommendations and broke them up into 10 food recommendations, if you call it subjects. So fruit's a different subject than vegetables, which is a different subject than whole grains. And you just focus on one of those give people as much time as they need to become successful in one of these modules. And I study this in elementary schools and boy, did it ever work. So I don't care what your diet looks like right now. Let's just focus on what would you like to focus on vegetables this month? Okay. And let's just focus on that. So this modular approach is the scientific basis for what I'm, what is done in the food coach Academy and a really important, important piece is to, and this is what I think is missing in this new food is medicine movement, which is a little different. Um, and I'll, I can talk about that more if you want me to, but, um, in order to honor an individual's palate, because no two of us taste the same, right. And to honor their wallet and their cultural traditions, we need to bring culinary skills into this food is medicine movement, which to date is, is not present. Um, they're talking about sending medical meals to individuals who have certain diseases for a certain amount of time, and then they take it away. And to me, that's not equitable, nor is it diverse or inclusive because, and it's not fair. You can't just go in give people food and then come back and expect them to what do you expect them to do when it's all done? You haven't taught them how to cook and how to continue to cook a diabetes-friendly meal or a cardiovascular health um, meal. So with the Food Coach Academy, I specifically didn't focus on all these recipes. There are a bazillion and two out there. What I did focus on is what's called a build a meal. So if you want to build a, let's just say build a salad, you pick your greens, you pick your protein source, you pick your raw vegetables, and you pick your dressing. That way, I'm not asking someone to run out and get something new. They use what they have, what they like, and they make that salad based on those principles. And that is really um, a way to honor an individual who they are everywhere. So, so those are the principles. Yeah. So you've hit upon one of my pet peeves on these um, meal services like, mm-hmm. you know, Blue Apron, et cetera, et cetera, is that I think they teach people to be lazy. Um, and I think that, 
you're better off teaching people the skills that you talk about because then if they want to order a a meal from one of these services um they're able to kind of maybe customize it somehow because they have the skill to do that am i barking up the wrong tree here no no i get what you're saying and i say in that situation that t- when you look at the science taste leads away so let's just say that they're actually having experiences where they get to put something together uh, and they see that it tastes really good. Well, then I've got them, right? But it shouldn't end there. There there should be a culinary skill building program behind these meal services to individuals because when, and I get what you're saying. And as a nutritionist for many, many years, I always say it depends who I'm talking to my answer. And what I mean by that is I always give this example. If I'm talking to one person, I'm able to give a more um, specific recommendation versus if I'm talking to a group of individuals, right? So individuals have different palates and some of them will not care about cooking. And as long as they're eating the food, they've taken that one step. That's the one step they decided, but they should have the opportunity to be able to take the next step. So I kind of agree with you, but I do think there is some positives there, but it's what the food is medicine movement is going to be doing too, is sending people food. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, and it makes me angry. <laughs> not I, they do need the food, but that's just not where it should start nor stop. Well, the problem with that from a from a business standpoint is that the the food as a subscription service, you know, creates an ongoing stream of revenue for the company. Yes. The, the teaching behind it does not, unless they can exactly. figure out some way to do that. So right. let, let's talk about the future a little bit. Okay. Um, what's on the horizon um, that we can expect to see that's exciting in the next year or two? Well, what you're going to see, you're going to see a tribe of food coaches that are out there in areas that are teaching individuals how to transform um, the dietary recommendations into delicious meals. You're also going to be seeing a lot of lot more. It's not, um, about the microbiome, right? So the microbiome is what are the bacteria and the, all these nice little bugs in our intestines, which actually have more genetic. Uh, input than we do. <laughs> they have, you know, when you when you look at it that way, and really your gut determines your health. And so we're going to see more and more of that coming down the pike. And with this new food as medicine movement, which was really sparked by the Biden Harris administration to end hunger, which I applaud, applaud, applaud. I am hoping that culinary medicine is able to be integrated and folded into that movement. Because if it isn't, I can tell you with my 35, 40 years of experience, it will not be equitable, diverse, or inclusive. And that would be a big shame. I can't believe it, but we are out of time. I would love, love, love to have you back and talk more about some of the programs you're working on, as well as your background, because I think it's fascinating how you kind of blended your background in food and nutrition and health together, but we're going to have to save that for another time. I would Uh, love to tell you about my background. And as a teaser, I was given two weeks to live in my twenties. Here I am. Here I am 30, 40 years later. Let's talk about it, Alan. I would love to join you again. This has been a pleasure. Listen, one more thing. Uh, Let's give people the, uh, the 
information they need to learn more about your online cooking school, your book, et cetera? So they can either, I'm going to give them my email address, right? So culinaryrehab at gmail.com. So that's culinary, R-E-H-A-B at gmail.com. Or you go to drdebkennedy.com, which is D-R-D-E-B kennedy.com. So either one of those, drdebkennedy.com or culinaryrehab at gmail.com. Yes, those are the, <laughs> yeah, thank you for asking that. I always forget that part. No, no, we, we want to make sure people can find out more. Well, again, I'd like to thank Dr. Deb Kennedy of being our guest on Food Forward Nourishing the World. I look forward to having her back and we will be back to the show after these messages. Mark Tower's journey from his humble beginnings in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, to finding himself while in prison may sound familiar to some other famous figures, but his story is uniquely his own. Alan Weiner's new book, Watch Tower, chronicles Tower's wayward early days doing construction work of questionable legality to finding purpose in helping children in Peru and finally discovering his calling as a watchmaker while in prison. It's a story of redemption that teaches the value of time and faith in oneself. You can get your copy of Watch Tower today and dive into this inspirational tale. The book is available on Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble.com, and your favorite bookstore. Watch Tower, from the author who brought you the Max Rosen Mystery Series. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome to Food Forward Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. Today, we're thrilled to have Meg Bluth, who is Senior Director of Insights from the Brightfield Group a company renowned for their in-depth market research and data-driven insights in the cannabis, CBD, and wellness industries. Meg's expertise and contributions have been instrumental in shaping our understanding of these rapidly evolving markets. Her work at the Brightfield Group involves analyzing complex trends, consumer behaviors, and regulatory landscape, providing invaluable business intelligence to businesses and policymakers alike. Join us as we welcome Meg Bluth to the show. Welcome, Meg. Thanks, Ellen. Nice so, to be here. Oh, great. So listen, we're here to talk about some specific research that you did that caught my eye. And as somebody who was in the research business for uh, a long time, let's put it that way, um, when I see something that pops out at me, I, I really want to know more. So the Brightfield Group did some research on five things that shoppers look for on labels at the grocery store, correct? Yes. So we are actually tracking um, quarterly a lot of behaviors that people are doing within the wellness and health industry. And one of the questions that we're asking in this quarterly tracking is about the types of ingredients that people are looking for in their food. And so we're able to see what those ingredients are, what are some of those top um, ingredients? Um, I'm sorry. No, that's fine. Um, um, 
Go ahead. I was going to go through the five ingredients and then um, kind of circle back. Okay. Okay. All right. So we have sugar, refined sugar, um, what's known as real ingredients. And we'll get back to that. High fructose corn syrup, artificial sweeteners, and quote unquote, all natural, which leads me to the question as somebody who's done research, um, how do are, are are people given definitions or are they left to their own devices to interpret what they mean by real ingredients? Yeah, we are not giving them definitions of what this is. These are really the types of claims that ingredients will have on packages and whether or not those are kind of catching their eye or they're looking for that. And so, you know, it's they're open to their interpretation when it comes to something, quote unquote, you know, made with real food ingredients. Um, but it is interesting to kind of see how that has held steady as something that people are definitely saying, I'm looking for that kind of indication that this food has real food ingredients. Interesting. And, and just on the labels themselves, have you noticed that labels have changed to become more explanatory over the course of your research? I think that the labels have become more explanatory in ways like um, you know, being able to say something is all natural. Um, that's something that as time has gone on, we've seen that, you know, people are wanting more specifics than that. Um, that has sort of fallen a bit out of favor and more towards, I want to make sure that there's not a lot of added sugars or there's no preservatives. And so saying all natural is kind of more generic and doesn't really tell them enough. So we've definitely seen focus moving away from not just consumers kind of wanting all natural, but manufacturers realizing that's not enough. Mm. Um, they need to be more specific about what it is that is neutral and what is it that these people are looking for in food. So um, before we talk about how the, how the uh, preferences have changed, is there a preference that surprised you either by being listed or not listed? I would say I was surprised by no artificial sweeteners. Not that it's listed, but essentially who's interested in it and who's really looking for it. I, you know, have spent a lot of my career in the beverage world and, you know, working on artificial sweeteners and generally understanding that. And I had more of a thought that younger people were really concerned about artificial sweeteners, but the way we've been tracking the last two years, it really is sort of boomers that care a lot more about artificial sweeteners and are really kind of more worried about them. And it's interesting that some of the younger consumers, although they want things that are all natural, they've kind of grown up with these natural or these artificial sweeteners in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, Their Gen X parents and things like that had were serving them foods and beverages with that in there. So they kind of get a little bit more of a pass with them. So I think that's what's been interesting just to really dig into the demographics of that kind of um, feeling around artificial sweeteners. Well, I appreciate you walking into my next question. <laughs> so in terms of the demographic breakdown on these preferences, yeah, things like income level, region, educational background, how big a role do those elements play in this research? Oh, you know, they, they definitely play a huge role. So we've seen a lot of differences across demographics. And some of the key demographics you really hit on here, you know, um, income and education, have been a real game changers in sort of how we look at this data and and where we see things sort of popping. Um, if we look at some of the highest income groups, people making above 100,000 in their home, um, we can see that they are 
essentially looking for all of those top five claims, all natural, made with food, real food, no sugar, no added sugar, that is, no artificial sweeteners. They're really over-indexing on all of those things. And when we look at lower-income consumers, consumers kind of in that, you know, under $50,000 or less coming into the home, they're actually 1.3 times more likely to say that they're actually looking for none of these. So there is a certain income level. There is some changes and some decisions that they're making for their family based on some of the income that's coming in. And they don't really have perhaps the luxury to be as choosy with some of the things that they're looking for. And we also see, you know, very much connected in terms of education levels. So we can see consumers that have a high school diploma or less education are significantly less likely to be looking for some of the more technical ingredient claims like free from artificial flavors, free from artificial preservatives and things like non-GMOs. And so, you know, we can certainly see that this is potentially something, those are a little bit more technical. They need a little bit more understanding of sort of what those things mean. Um, and so we can see that that could be what's driving that as well. We also see a few patterns in region, which I think are interesting. You know, we've got our Western and our Northeastern states that are really, you know, always have been very focused on organics. But we also see the West is skewing a little bit more towards non-GMOs and looking for non-high uh, fructose corn syrup claims. While the Midwest, my people, the land of cheese and meat raffles, um, we're not really overly focused on claims. In fact, they're more likely to say that they're looking for none of them if they're in the Midwest. So, you know, definitely a lot of really interesting preferences as you kind of think through all the different ways you can demographically break this kind of data up. So when you talk about people like you just did from the Midwest and people from a lower income level, mm-hmm. do they look at the label at all? Or, or is there something that would totally turn them off or they're just looking at the label for curiosity? You know, it's hard to say, you know, this is not something we specifically ask them, um, but they're telling us, you know, I'm, I'm generally trying to eat well, but I'm not searching out those specific claims. And so maybe they certainly have ideas of what they were looking for and maybe they're using more fresh foods and things like that. And so there aren't labels involved. It's a bit hard to say, but, Um, We don't know exactly if they're looking at the labels, but they tell us in this situation, they're not looking specifically for some of those things. Does, does the word vegan on a label pop up in any of your research? Um, We don't ask on the label um, if they're looking for vegan. We do ask if they're in a, um, on a vegan diet. Um, So we certainly know kind of how many people are on a vegan diet. We do ask questions about, you know, more plant forward, you know, not having dairy, not having meat, uh, plant-based foods, things like that. But we don't specifically dig too far into, you know, vegan label claims. So let's talk about, you know, the change in preferences. What's been the biggest change that you've noticed over the past few years? And what do you think is driving the change? Yeah, I think the the past two years where we've seen rise, um, because we've been doing this about um, two and a half years now with this uh, wellness survey at Byfield Group. The two that we've seen growing in terms of these sort of ingredient areas is no sugar added, um, which we've seen that kind of go up about 3% in the last two years. And then no artificial sweeteners also going up about that much in the last two years. And to me, those are areas that go kind of one level under that um, all natural, where we're seeing them kind of say, ah, that's sort of holding steady. 
It's always been very strong, but this gives you that descriptive level underneath of what does that kind of mean? It means that you're not putting artificial sweeteners and you're not adding sugar to something that is already sweet, perhaps. Mm. And so those are two that we've really seen on the rise. You know, when, when I'm imagining a food label, you know, I think of like two parts to the label. You know, there's the ingredients and then above it is, you know, the, the FDA or health issues like amount of fat, carbs, et cetera, et cetera. Do you ask any questions about that or do you notice people even looking at that? We do. We have another area that asks specifically about some of the things they're looking for in their foods, like low in carbs, low in sugar, low in fats, high in protein. Um, and so those are generally less about claims and more about, you know, some of the ways that they're making decisions about food. Mm-hmm. And we certainly see, you know, the same kind of thing, low sugar coming towards the top, high protein is, is uh, gaining more in popularity as well as we see some high protein diets that have focus on kind of that 30 G getting your 120 or so grams of protein in a day. Um, so we certainly see those continue to be on the rise. Mm. Well, you've walked into another question. So uh, if I'm a consumer that has a health concern, yeah. does that make me more uh, likely to look at and trust a food label? I think, you know, trust is a different question. Um, I think it does make you more likely to look at a food label. Um, but we also know, you know, people in the U.S., we, we don't always do what we should for our health. And so we're seeing about 80% of consumers in our survey say that they in some way are focused on health and wellness. So we have a segment that's about 20% that really isn't that focused. They're, they're just kind of doing the basics to get by from a health perspective. And that group can have a lot of conditions and does have a lot of conditions and doesn't seem to be doing a lot of their behaviors towards that. Um, But that being said, if I look and I kind of dig into the data and say, okay, if someone has diabetes, do I see them more or less looking at things that say no added sugar or looking for low sugar in their ingredients on labels? And I do. I definitely see that like a significant increase among those diabetic consumers. But I also see that 30, 33% of people who have diabetes tell me, I don't actually look for no added sugar, or I don't really look for low sugar on my labels. And so to me, that's really interesting because they're aware they have diabetes. Sometimes we see that there's an educational level of difference within diabetes, not fully understanding perhaps some of the, um, the dangers with diabetes or maybe have access to consistent health care. Um, And we also see some uh, ability that or could be sort of tied to income where they don't necessarily have the ability to make some of the healthier food choices or the restricted incomes and limited access to some fresh foods. So there's a lot of sort of like comorbidities or co um, instances of things that are sort of happening in there. Um, So that being said, people who have these diseases do tend to be more aware, but there is a really alarming amount of people who are just either not capable or not really making that first foot forward and some things that we know they should be doing for some of the diseases that they have. Now, that's interesting. Me as a type one diabetic and consumer, I look at carbs first. Mm. I look at carbs and then fiber. So I then look at net carbs. I guess I do look at sugar, but I generally, you know, uh, instinctively know not to eat something that has a lot of sugar, like, you know, cookies, cake, et cetera. Interesting. Um, My last question has to do with terminology, something like all natural. 
So there's really no definition of all natural. Um, how, How do you kind of think that the consumer perceives all natural to be? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, when I dug in a little further into all natural, I saw an interesting understanding or at least interest in all natural on a label for younger and older consumers. Younger consumers, the Gen Xers, the millennials were more likely to say that I'm looking for all natural, while older consumers um, seem to want more specifics. And so I think all natural is so nebulous and undescripted that it's kind of fallen out of favor with more savvy consumers, people who are really have been consumers for a long time with food. They're really making those decisions. And as these younger consumers come of age, they too will be looking for more specifics to kind of back up that claim of all natural. And as a result, I think that consumer preferences are going to move towards wanting more than that blanket statement. And it's going to force manufacturers to really follow suit there. Definitely. I love talking research with somebody who is just so skilled at market research, but unfortunately we've run out of time. So I'd like to thank Meg Bluth, who is Senior Director of Insights at the Brightfield Group. I hope to have her on again to talk about other trends as well. We will be back to Food Forward, Nourishing the World after these messages. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. I want to give a special thanks to Stephen Parker, Dr. Deb Kennedy, and Meg Bluth for joining us today. Please tune in again next week. And remember, if you don't hear us live, you can listen to any of the shows on demand. With that, I hope to see you again and talk to you again next week. So until then, eat hearty. I need healthy. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Food Forward. We hope we've given you some insights into the wide world of food. Until we talk again, have a wonderful week. 